The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. So we continue our study in the book of Revelation. Ever since Adam and Eve were evicted from the Garden of Eden and a cherubim was put to the entrance of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Ever since that happened, the human race has yearned somehow to get back there. Uh, We have in our hearts a sense of a perfect society in a perfect world, including a perfect government with a perfect economy, with perfect human relationships, no war, perfect prosperity and peace, harmony with nature, perfect beauty. We have that in our hearts, a yearning to get back to the garden. Philosophers, artists, political dreamers and theorists, religious cult leaders, Many others have concocted their own views of what this perfect world will look like. In 380 B.C., Plato wrote a book entitled The Republic, Plato's Republic, in which just city-states were ruled by philosopher kings bringing in a perfect society. So people have been dreaming about this for a long time. Just after, you know, within, within a few decades after Christopher Columbus discovered the New World, Sir Thomas More wrote a, a book called Utopia, literally no place. Sometimes Utopia, like the Greek, good place. In which he posited an island in the New World in which there was a perfect society. Ideal society. In our history, in the 19th century, as America expanded and went westward, there were more and more of these kind of perfect idealized societies popping up all over the landscape, especially after the Second Great Awakening, kind of basically like communistic type societies that would grow up and try to create in their own valley, wherever they were living, a perfect society, a perfect world. In 1905, H.G. Wells wrote a book called A Modern Utopia, And he had to get off planet Earth. He had to go to an entire other planet. But there was a portal, a doorway in some valley in in Switzerland in the Alps. And you get through to the perfect world that way. 1905 H.G. Wells. Now the Bible has its own ending of the story. The ending of the story of mankind after the fall, after the eviction from the garden. And we are beginning our journey through the Bible's end of the story. As we start Revelation 20 this morning. Revelation 20, 21, 22. That's the Bible's end to the story. So, let me put it plainly. As best I can. After the second coming of Christ, one of two things will happen, I think. Either there will be a thousand year reign of Jesus Christ physically on the earth. Leading ultimately to an eternal state called the new heavens and the new earth. 
or immediately after the second coming of Christ, we'll get immediately to the new heaven and the new earth after judgment day. One of those two things will happen. So we'll either have what's known as a millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign physically of Christ on earth, taught, say, many Christians in these verses right here. Satan will be bound. Righteousness and blessings will flourish. People will experience lavishly blessed, healthy, long, successful lives with Christ physically reigning on the earth, but in which there will still be birth, aging, and death, and sin, but reigned in and those curses reduced Satan bound for a thousand years, which will end in one more final battle described in the verses you just heard Ben read, of which almost nothing is said, but just a final battle, Gog and Magog, and then the new heaven and and the new earth, judgment day, new heaven, new earth. Either that, that's the millennial kingdom, or Christ on his second coming, we just saw last week in Revelation 19, will return, he'll win the battle of Armageddon. And we will go immediately to what's known as the great white throne judgment or the the sheep and the goats gathering of all nations. Satan, demons, all the reprobate, all the unbelievers will be judged and cast into the lake of fire at once. The righteous will receive their resurrection bodies, their glorified bodies at once with no sin, no possibility of a future fall. There will be immediately a new earth and a new heavens. New heaven, new earth. First heaven, the first earth will pass away. Peter tells us in a conflagration of fire. And we will come into the eternal state. One of those two things will happen. Either the millennial kingdom leading to the eternal state or we'll go immediately into the eternal state. And dear friends, I don't know which of the two I believe. And you're like, well, how in the world are you supposed to preach to us? I could say if you would like to try to do better, I could invite you up here. But I would want to sit next to you and start asking you questions on whatever view you had. Now, Herbert a few weeks ago said, just preach the text, brother. I'm like, I'm trying. I'm going to try (laughs) to preach the text. But I have always sought to settle every text in the overall corpus of biblical teaching. I believe in the law of non-contradiction. I think there must be some way to harmonize all of the things God said to us in the Word. And theology is a, is a task of trying to do that. Trying to harmonize everything we read into a growing body of, of truth. Non-contradiction. And that's where things get challenging. Now, the millennium, the word millennium literally comes from the Latin meaning thousand years. That's what millennium means. And it comes right from this text. Uh, The idea of Christ reigning physically on earth in a wonderfully blessed world surrounded by the redeemed from every nation on earth is not at stake. That is most certainly going to happen. The eternal state is going to happen either scenario. And I think... Everyone would agree, all Bible-believing Christians would agree that Revelation 21 and 22 describes that. We all agree. The question is what's going on in these verses. That physical world that we will enjoy in the new heaven, new earth, in which we will be in physical bodies, described in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, a spiritual body, and we will be in a world, that physicality of that, 
if it's described, it's certainly not described here in Revelation 20, but if it's described, that life, the physicality of it, it would be described in Old Testament passages, visionary passages from Isaiah or Ezekiel or other places. But it may be that those passages, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, uh, are, is describing, it could be describing the millennial kingdom, it could be describing the eternal uh, kingdom, or it could be describing the spiritual blessings of the gospel. We'll talk about all that. Now, the essence of the millennium is, is not that. Both faces of Christ, of God's kingdom, have that. The issue with the millennium is a greatly enhanced, blessed world that still includes birth, sin, and death. That's the difference between the millennium and the eternal state. So, what is the difference between now and the millennium? Well, vast, if there is going to be a physical millennium. Now, Christ is reigning physically in heaven, where he ascended and, and went and a cloud hid him from the uh, uh, sight, and he's sitting at the right hand of God, and though we have not seen him, we love him, and even though we do not see him now, we believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious Joy, 1 Peter 1. Now Christ rules his invisible spiritual kingdom by the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of converted people or people he's converting. That's what's going on now. Invisible spiritual kingdom. In the millennial kingdom, Christ will be reigning physically on earth, settling disputes among the nations, which need to be uh, settled because there will still be sin nature, causing people to live at peace with one another. Now, Satan is roaming the earth with his demons, continually tempting us to sin. In the millennium, if there will be a a literal millennium, he will be locked up in a prison, unable to deceive the world. Now, the world system that Satan has sent up is continually alluring and enticing us to sin. If there will be a millennium, a physical millennium, Christ reigning on earth... There will be no world system, no alluring world system pulling us toward evil and sin. Now the world is groaning in bondage to decay and corruption and a cycle of death. In the millennium, the effects of sin, Adam's sin, will be greatly reduced but not totally removed. That's the difference between the millennium and the eternal state. Now the work that we do is under the curse of Adam. We wrestle with the ground and it produces thorns and thistles. In the millennium, the labor that we would do would be lavishly blessed and fruitful, providing deep uh, satisfaction, though not yet perfection. Now our bodies are racked with pain and sickness and all of us will die. Probably on average at age 80, I guess. I don't know what the charts are for men and women, but something like that. In the millennium, pain and sickness are uh, reduced, though not removed. People are more robustly healthy. Uh, Death is deferred much later, though not entirely removed. People will still die, but on average, they will die at a much later age. Now, where do I get all this information? Well, you don't get it from Revelation 20. That's the whole issue. You don't, you don't get, all you get, you just heard Revelation 20. You don't get rich blessing and lavish agricultural thing and long life. And you don't get any of that. You get Christ's return in Revelation 19. Then you get the binding of Satan and all the things that Ben just read. So what you have to do is weave those together, that idea. It's like, well, we're going to do something for a thousand years. And, and here's where the challenge comes, friends. When you start, if you're curious at all, 
And you're like, well, I want to know. I mean, I, I want to know how that's going to work. If you want to s- try to figure out millennial life, that's when things get really interesting and challenging. And the idea of what it will be like, the lavish blessing of having Christ on earth, comes mostly from Old Testament visionary passages. Like, for example, Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, which we're going to look at in a moment. So, for all of that, you might say, why do, do you not know whether this is going to happen? Well, it's because of the difficulty of interpreting the book of Revelation as a whole. And the difficulty of inter- interpreting this particular passage in, in detail, of actually trying to answer questions of the detail, and trying to find a clear description of millennial life in those Old Testament prophecies that cannot be referring to the new heaven, new earth that cannot be referring just to the spiritual blessings of the gospel, that must be uh, uh, referring just to the millennium. If those are the criteria, you're going to have a hard time finding passages like that. In other words, if you can find a passage in the Old Testament which describes lavish agricultural blessings on a previously barren land in Isaiah, let's say, it may be referring to the blessings of salvation by faith in Christ, just as the Spirit's outpoured. Jesus used agricultural analogy all the time. I'm the vine and you're the branches. And if you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. So the idea of a lavish agricultural blessing may not be literal, but may be spiritual. And you're not you know, a theological liberal if you spiritualize that. We know that Jesus isn't literally a vine. The idea is he's using agricultural images to teach us of the blessings of the gospel. Isaiah does the same thing a lot. Or that passage might be referring to the blessings of the restoration of Israel from exile to Babylon in the same kind of agricultural, lavishing, flourishing terms. Or it could refer to the blessings of millennial life. Or it could refer to the blessings of the new heaven and the new earth. So if you start asking the question, what will millennial life be like? Give me a scripture. You're going to have a challenge. You've got a very narrow uh, window of opportunity that you have to fit into. For example, Isaiah 44, 3 and 4, it says, For I'll pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I'll pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Isaiah does this a lot. And, and you look at that and it's like, is, what, what are the, which of the four is that going to be? Could be any of the four. Could be all of them. Just don't know. Is Isaiah talking about God literally turning the desert into a paradise? Or is he speaking of the effects of the outpoured Holy Spirit on people? What is it? Now listen, whole books have been written about the millennium. I mean, whole books. I actually was going to bring one into the pulpit. I left it in, in my office. But I thought, why should I read to them? I mean, you know, it's like there's this one book that's like 450, 500 pages on the millennium. There's just so much. And the topic's been debated throughout history. Augustine debated the millennium in his day with, with Kilius, they call them, or millennial um, thinkers. Calvin and Luther did as well. Jonathan Edwards, following the Calvinist, the Augustinian pattern, spiritualized the millennium and saw it as the advance of the gospel throughout church history and the overthrowing of the false Roman Catholic system. That's what he saw. So the two views that are fighting here, they've fought for a long time. Now in my life, I've gone back and forth on this topic. Sometimes on Monday, one thing, and sometimes on Tuesday, the other. And unlike any other theological topic I've ever studied, the more I study it, the more difficult it gets for me to resolve. Usually things get resolved when you work on them. 
In 2002, I was sitting with a friend of mine at the Southern Baptist Convention in St. Louis. His name is Tom Schreiner. He wrote a very long commentary on the book of Romans, excellent commentary. He is a professor of New Testament at Southern Seminary in Louisville and is, in my opinion, one of the leading New Testament scholars in the world. As we were sitting there in 2002, we were talking about the millennium, and I was trying, still trying to work out my views at the time. I was leaning toward amillennialism. Pause. Amillennialism is the view that the thousand years that have just been described is basically symbolic language for the spread of the gospel throughout the church age. And it's just recapitulating the very story that we've just seen with the end, the, the battle of Armageddon ending, the Gog and Magog thing. That's just what we've already covered. It's just going back over that same ground. That's, that's uh, an evangelical, inerrantist, amillennial view. That the thousand years is just a way of covering the same ground we've just covered. Basically, a thousand years is a long time, and it's just the spread of the gospel. Satan's bound in that way. We'll get to all that. But anyway, I was trying to work through that, or premillennialism, which is just the evangelical landscape. Most evangelicals are premillennial. They believe in the thousand-year reign. So I'm sitting with him having this conversation. Just going back. Uh, over it, and he said he was a premillennialist. The word pre, by the way, means it's got to do with the timing of the second coming versus the millennium. And so the word pre means Jesus comes back and then the millennium happens. That's what premillennialism is. So Jesus returns and then you get the millennium. That's the thousand year reign, physically, Christ on earth. He said he was premillennial. I said, why? That's the whole point. Not just, what are you, Tom? I'm premillennial. Oh, okay. No, I want to know why. What are your reasons? He said, well, because of the apparently chronological laying out of the chapters in Revelation. And you guys have been following with me through all that. So it's just, it just seems to be like we're just following an unfolding story with Revelation 17 and 18 kind of an aside describing Babylon. And we just are following the unfolding of the judgment of God on earth that hasn't happened yet. And then you get the second coming and then you get the millennium. And then you get the eternal state. So I said, well, it sounds good. All right, I'm in. Premillennial. Um, in the course of time, I was asked to write a commentary in the book of Isaiah. And I came to Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. So go ahead and look there if you would. Some of you were here when I preached through Isaiah. It wasn't that long ago, and I preached through this very chapter. Some of you said, I feel like we talk about the millennium all the time. Well, I'm not trying to do that. I am trying to understand it. But friends, if we don't talk about the millennium today, then I don't know what we're... I mean, this is Revelation 21 through 10, so it's time to think about it and talk about it. So uh, I was asked to write a commentary, and we came, I came to this text. Look at Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Now, if you know Revelation 21, that sounds exactly like the eternal state. The new heaven, new earth, no weeping, no crying. Wonderful. All right, great. Then comes verse 20. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. Whoa, wait a minute. And then he who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. All right, now my circuit breaker trip. I was like, wait a minute. I thought we were in the new heaven, new earth. And that is where there's no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. So what in the world is going on in verse 20? 
So you've got birth, aging, death, and if you've got birth, you've got marriage, you've got all of this. But Jesus told us in the kingdom there'll be neither marrying nor giving a marriage. So now we've got marriage, birth, aging, death. I'm confused. Verse 21, they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses or others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Wow. And so you read that and you're saying, okay, you got birth, you got aging, you got death, and this lavish blessing. This is where millennial thinkers get descriptions of millennial life. And they use this as a doorway to go to other similar passages in Isaiah. And they find other aspects of the millennial kingdom. That's how it's done. That's how the life is filled in. Well, it's one thing to preach. It's hard enough to preach. It's one thing to just give your opinion out in the hall. But when you're actually publishing a commentary, you've got to get it figured out. So I figured I would give Tom Schreiner a call. So I did. I said, hi, Tom. How are you? Hey, Andy, how are you? I said, well, I'm just trying to um, work through the millennium. I get to this passage in Isaiah. It seems to be describing the new heaven, new earth. There's no weeping, mourning. And yet there's birth and death and people dying at age 100 and all that. So how do we, you know, how do we work that through? I mean, you're, you know, I, I know your views. You're premillennial. He stopped me and said, actually, Andy, I'm not anymore. I'm amillennial now. <laughs> I could have dropped the phone. So this is not just me. So I'm not saying that my job t today is to get all of you confused and, and not knowing what to do. Some of you know exactly what you believe about the millennium, and I, I respect that. I really do. One thing I don't like is in the history of evangelicalism, if you're a millennial, there's kind of a knee-jerk that you're a liberal, a theological liberal. That is just ignorant, actually, ignorant of church history. You're not going to have a higher view of Scripture than John Calvin, and he was a millennial. So I just think what happened, there's a whole history, I'm not going to go into it, of fundamentalist, modernist debate and how millennialism, premillennialism fit into that. I'm just saying, we've come to the place, for the most part, in evangelicalism where you can have either of these views and you're considered, as long as you believe in inerrancy, you believe in a physical existence, bodily resurrection, and a resurrected world and all that. And if you say that's eternity or you say that's millennium, then eternity, I think it's one of those things... And, and if I can just lay my cards on the table, honestly, if you believe all that and you're active in putting sin to death, growing in holiness, and you're active in sh sharing the gospel, you're active in spreading, then I don't think it matters what you believe about the millennium. It's actually not going to affect your marriage, your prayer life. I think we ought to work at it because it's in the scripture. But this is one of those event, these issues that you actually don't need to resolve as long as you have a high view of scripture and you believe in personal holiness, you believe in bodily resurrection, you believe in the spread of the gospel, then... Look, if you're a millennial and there ends up being a literal millennium, what are you going to do? Get left out? I mean, you're going to be there. Or in heaven, or if you're beheaded, we'll get into all that. But um, you, you will be where you're supposed to be, all right? He's not going to ask, do you believe in the millennium or not? It's just going to be, and whatever it is. And if you are premillennial and the amills were right, and we go straight to the eternal state, I'm telling you, you'll not be sad or disappointed. 
One thing I have noticed about premillennials is that they tend to speak far more about the millennium than they do about the eternal state. I don't get that. We are going to be in the millennium for a while. We're going to be in the eternal state for eternity. And, the, and Revelation 21 22 so clearly describes aspects of the eternal state. We ought to spend more time on that. That's what I think at any rate. How do we figure all this out? Well, the best thing to do, Herbert, is just read the scripture and preach it. By the way, if you're worried about the time right now, if you're like, we haven't even started, Pastor. We haven't even, we haven't even done verse 1. I mean, there is like no hope. And plus, we have Lord's Supper today. We're like, there's like doubly no hope. Well, I gave up on the idea of preaching this sermon just in one on Wednesday. Tom gives me my sermon, and it's bound up. And there's a little thing up here and with a paper clip on Wednesday and the number of pages. And it's always ridiculously a lot. I can take about 16 to 18 pages in here and get through it in the time, all right? Usually it's around 20, 21, so I lop off about two or three pages on Thursday afternoon. This one was 28 pages and growing. So I was like, all right, we are not doing this. So what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to make a prediction about what's going to happen. We're going to... I'm going to keep preaching. I'm going to do my best to explain what I've got here. And we're going to get to a certain awkward like, point, and it's got to do with this clock here. And then I'm going to say, okay. And then I'm going to do a little bit of application. And putting all humor aside, I'm going to preach the gospel to any of you who are here that are unbelievers. Because it really doesn't make a difference what you believe about the millennium. What matters is, are your sins forgiven through faith in Christ? And then I'm going to get the church ready to go to the Lord's Supper. And... It'll be like a cliffhanger. We'll pick it up next week, wherever we are. So that's what I'm planning on doing. The best thing we can do, like Romans 4, 3 says, what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? We're going to try to walk through this and try to understand it. Now, before we do, I just want to do a little bit of context. And I've tried to do this. I know you could say, just cut this out. Let's just get to Revelation 20. But it won't make a lot of sense if we don't see where we've been. The book of Revelation is an unveiling of the invisible spiritual world but also of the future. Revelation 1.1 tells us that. Jesus Christ is revealed, and it's given to show his servants what must soon take place. The word soon shouldn't throw us because Jesus says at the very end, behold, I am coming soon. And so it's just soon in his economy. It's the next thing that's happening. So it's given to uh, unfold the future. Now, as we walk through, we have in Revelation 4, a doorway and heavenly throne, and John goes up by the power of the Spirit and sees God on his throne. The central reality of the universe is God enthroned. And we have a heavenly vision of concentric circles of thrones and and worship, worship, worship going on for God the Creator. In Revelation 5, we have in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll sealed with seven seals. And Jesus, the lion, the lamb, takes that scroll. He has the authority, the right to do it. And then in Revelation 6, he breaks open the seven seals. He starts to break open the seven seals. Six of them are recorded there. He breaks them open and judgments start happening from heaven to earth. In Revelation 7, you have depicted a multitude greater than anyone can count from every tribe, language, people, and nation that are redeemed by the blood of Christ. And they are the point of the whole story. The redemption of lost people from all over the world. That's why all of this is happening. Revelation 8 and 9 is a picture of seven trumpets of judgments that are so devastating on the ecology of the earth and on the economy of the earth. They are so grand and vast and devastating that there's no way you can spiritualize them and say that they happened here or they happened there, etc. Nothing like it has ever uh, been seen. And since we're told in Revelation 1.1 that he's telling us what must soon take place, they are trumpet judgments that are yet to come. They haven't come yet, but they're coming. 
And then in Revelation 12, we get a picture of behind the scenes, this serpent, this dragon mentioned in our text in Revelation 20, Satan, and his hatred for the people of God, and his hatred for Israel, and his desire to pursue the children of the woman, the woman being Israel, so the believers who follow, who follow Christ and obey his commandments. He hates them and wants to kill them, and he pursues them. So the satanic invisible spiritual realm satanic attack on the people of God on earth. Then in Revelation 13 you see the final phase of Satan's devastating attack on the church and that is the Antichrist, the beast from the sea. The one world ruler that is coming. He's not come yet, but he is coming. And the beast from the earth, the false prophet, who is enabled to do miraculous signs and wonders to deceive the nations. And he causes the population of the earth to bow down to an idol of the beast, the Antichrist. Bow down to the Antichrist and worship the one final religion of the world. An idolatrous, wicked religion. And he also causes people to receive a mark on the forehead or on the hand. If you don't receive it, you can't buy or sell. And so there's economic strictures and a persecution of people who will not worship the beast. We're told in Revelation 14, if you do receive the mark of the beast, you'll spend eternity in hell. So there's a clear demarcation of believers and unbelievers. We, the elect, the true followers of Christ, will not bow down. And therefore, we're going to have to run for our lives. We're going to be persecuted. And it's a very, very difficult time. And so the book of Revelation unfolds. Revelation 16 depicts the final bowl judgments poured out on the ecology of the world. The entire sea this time, not a third of the sea, but the entire sea, turned to blood. Every living thing in the sea dies. And at the end of that, uh, Revelation uh, 16, we've got the battle of Armageddon. And, and so these lying, deceiving spirits go around the world and gather everyone together for a climactic battle. For amillennialists, they say, isn't that what we're seeing in Revelation 20, the Gog and Magog, that gathering for the final battle? Premillennialists say, yeah, well, that's going to happen one more time. Either way, it's possible. But at any rate, in Revelation 16, we have a gathering for the battle of Armageddon. Revelation 17 says that the kings of the earth, plural, under the Antichrist, they have one purpose, and that's to give their power to the Antichrist. And they're all there to fight for him and to slaughter the, the believing, now Jews, they're believing in Christ. And so all Israel will be saved, it says in Romans 11. And so they're coming to Palestine, they're coming to Armageddon, they're coming to ultimately try to get to Jerusalem and slaughter all of the Jews that are now believing in Christ as their Messiah. They think it's going to be an easy battle, but they don't understand who they're dealing with. And the time has come for the bridegroom to come and rescue his bride. And so he comes in Revelation 19, the very thing we saw last week, the second coming of Christ. And the second coming of Christ is, is carnage, It's absolute carnage. There are, there are dead bodies everywhere. There's a river of blood that's depicted for us earlier in Revelation. It's, it's, it's just carnage, and it's a, a climactic battle. And that brings us to Revelation 20. And it begins with the binding of Satan. Look at verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss... And holding in his hand a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan. And bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss. And locked and sealed it over him. To keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. Until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free 
for a short time. So the chapter opens with a powerful, decisive action, the binding of Satan. The one who does the binding here is a single angel coming down out of heaven. He, we are told, has the key to the abyss. Now the word abyss in the Greek literally means bottomless. So a bottomless pit. That's the idea of the abyss. There are other texts that mention the abyss and there are other texts that mention a pit of punishment for demons. Revelation 9, 1 through 3 says, The fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. And when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. So Revelation 9 The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. Satan is identified as the king of the abyss. Revelation 9-11, they had king over them, the angel of the abyss. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek Apollyon. Both those words mean destroyer. So you basically have this image of billowing smoke coming like out of a smokestack. And then they come and they plague the earth. So you start to put this together with some other verses that are mentioned in Jude and 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2, 4 says that God didn't spare angels when they sinned back then, whenever that is. But threw them down into Tartarus is the Greek. Uh, In Greek mythology, like a deep pit, Tartarus. The pit and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment. Same idea. Pit, chains. But that's demons that were locked up back some earlier time. Some people think it was uh, demons that fell uh, during the time of right before Noah. Noah's flood. But we don't know. It just says that he didn't spare them. And he put them into this dark pit with chains. Jude 6 says the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Basically covering the same thing. So these are demons that fell some time ago and they're locked up in a pit but with a chain. Now, demons in Jesus' day, when Jesus is doing his miraculous signs and wonders, some of them were healing people that were demon-possessed, demonized. Controlled by demons. And one of them was the demoniac of the Gadarenes. And you remember this guy was naked, howling at the moon, breaking chains. And was a terror to the entire countryside. He was a terrifying individual. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied. Because many demons had gone into him. Like 6,000 demons in one individual. And listen to this. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them into the abyss. You hear that? That's powerful. So basically, they are pleading with Jesus to not be sent prematurely. They want to retain their freedom, basically. That's what they have. They have freedom to cause trouble. And they're pleading with him. So he actually drives them out. They go into pigs and the pigs die. You remember that story. But they're begging, please don't send us to the abyss. I would think we would say, like you did the other demons. Putting it all together. So here, uh, Satan is seized by this angel with a commission from God, and he's bound with a great chain, and he is thrown into the abyss. Now, key to the amillennial position is this idea 
that Jesus, when he came in his first coming and began preaching the kingdom of God, says to some degree he bound Satan. This, key, this is key to the Amil position. Jesus' enemies and scribes, Pharisees, other unbelieving Jewish leaders said that he was a deceiver and he was actually driving out demons by, the, by Beelzebub, the king of demons. Jesus answers that. But then he describes what he actually is doing. And he says in Matthew 12, 29, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. So, I mean, you think about what he's saying there. The strong man is Satan. Satan's possessions are people. The one stronger than the strong man is Jesus. And he comes and overpowers this strong man and ties him up. Then he can steal people from Satan's dark kingdom. All millennial people say that's exactly what the thousand years is all about. The binding of Satan is a provisional binding to keep him from deceiving people in reference to the gospel so that the kingdom of God can advance. That's what they teach. Another passage like this, Luke 11, it says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divided up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So in other words, what I am doing in gathering and assembling the kingdom of God is an act of spiritual violence. I am conquering a wicked king. I am plundering his kingdom. I am building my kingdom out of plundered living stones that have been quarried from a dark kingdom. I'm sending my church over the walls of Hades. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We're, we're going on a rescue mission. And we're going into dark territory and we're going to rescue living stones. I am plundering and Satan can't stop us. That's the effective binding of Satan. And it's been going on for 2,000 years. It says in Colossians 1.13, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We have been rescued from that dark kingdom. And Jesus said he had to bind the strong man in order to make that happen. Now, in the text, the purpose and result of the binding is clear. Look at verse 3. He threw him, Satan, into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. The deception of the nations is the essence of Satan's power and reign. Lies. He lies. He deceives people. That's how he rules his kingdom, by lies. When God said to Eve, to the woman, what have you done? She said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Jesus said of his enemies who hated the gospel, in John 8, 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So his deception of the nations has been essential to his kingdom. It's what he does. He deceives people. He deceives every generation concerning the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Sin won't damage you. Sin's fine. He's deceiving people. He deceives people into false religions. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam. These are all constructs and concocts of the devil. 
And he's lying to their adherents. Lying to atheists, other philosophical systems. It's just a system of lies and deceptions. He's deceiving the nations. Now, the greatest deception ever, we believe, will be in the reign of Antichrist. It will be a powerful delusion, it says in 2 Thessalonians 2. He will send them a powerful delusion. How? By the whole story of the Antichrist that we've been over numbers of times. And by the fact that he and the false prophet are able to do miraculous signs and wonders. To deceive even the elect, Jesus said, if that were possible. It's not possible. But that's a powerful delusion, a powerful lie. Now, if there is a literal millennium, the people who live on the earth at that time will, have, will come to faith in Christ like all of us did. I don't think we're going to have a different system of justification then. So they're going to have to believe in Jesus. But it's going to be very different than it was for us. They will have the great advantage of not having to overcome Satan. Of not having to overcome Satan's system of lies in the world. Of having to overcome false religions because I don't imagine there will be any. And they will come to believe in a literal physical Jesus right in front of them. Just like people in Jesus' age did. Like the thief on the cross did. And like Peter did and others did. They will, but they'll have tremendous advantages. But that doesn't mean that every single solitary person, if there is a literal millennium, will be a believer in Christ. There will be some unbelievers, and they will be the very ones gathered at the end to fight that one final time. More on that next week. Now, the thousand years and other numbers, I don't know what to tell you about the number thousand. Except that it is ten times ten times ten. It's cubed. It's a perfect number. Now, just because it's a perfect number doesn't mean it's not, a literal, it's not a literal number. We shouldn't do that. Just because something's symbolic doesn't mean it's not literal. We believe in both. Literal uh, historical symbols. Frequently in the Bible, the word thousand years can just mean a long time. Like with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Psalm 90 says a thousand years are in your sight like an evening watch that goes by. So this could be a long time or, just a, or a literal thousand years. Now the question in front of us, and with this we're going to stop and get to the Lord's Supper. But the question uh, in front of us that premillennials, or sorry, that amillennials have to struggle with is, is Satan bound now? I mean, is Satan depicted as bound? Now when you read Revelation 20, I mean, Satan's locked up. I mean, you can't be more bound. You're wrapped up with a great chain and thrown into an abyss and, and it's sealed. It's like he's like limited or blocked. No, I'm not seeing limited or blocked there in that verse. I'm seeing locked up, thrown into a pit. The, the problem is that we don't see that either scripturally or experientially. Right now, Satan's fighting everything we're trying to do. And many verses in the New Testament say that. The kingdom of heaven is like a, a, a man who went out to sow seed and, and some seed fell on the path and the birds came and ate it up. You remember that? Well, Jesus said when anyone hears the kingdom and doesn't receive it, Satan comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. So that's going on all the time. Satan's following behind preachers like me and if people don't have a soft heart, he plucks away immediately any impact of what they've heard. Doesn't make an impact. Satan is active. Uh, we're told in Ephesians 6 that we should put on the full armor of God. Why? Because Satan's locked up, a, a, a chained in the bottom of a pit? No. 
Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. We are told, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We're, we're told, be self-controlled and alert. First Peter 5. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. That's not restrained, chained, and thrown in a pit. He's out and about, and we need to be aware of what he's doing. In 1 Corinthians 5, he says he's going to hand a sinner over to Satan. Satan's not bound and thrown in a pit. He's, he's alive and active in Corinth. Hand him over to the unbelievers, the wicked surrounding satanic world. That's what he's saying. Then, when he repented, he said, you need to welcome him back, 2 Corinthians 2, so that, so that Satan will not have an advantage because we're not unaware of his schemes. We know what he's doing. So Paul felt he's always fighting Satan. You see, what we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. I'm not seeing a bound, thrown in a pit Satan. He's out and about. That's a strong argument then for the premillennial interpretation of Revelation 20, verse 1. Well, I can't leave it that way. I, I have to go the other side and then balance it so you can be as confused as I am as we finish today. And we'll, and we'll resume. Say, well, then why don't you just believe in the, in the literal millennium? The biggest problem I have is that it doesn't seem to be taught clearly anywhere else in the New Testament. For example, the Apostle Paul doesn't seem to know anything about it. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about the bodily resurrection, you would think he would mention a thousand years in which there's just a partial resurrection, etc. But it sees if all you had is 1 Corinthians 15, you're going to think, when do I get my resurrection body? When Christ comes. Then when he comes, he's the first fruit. Then when he comes, everybody else. But instead, we have a partial resurrection, and we'll get into all that next time. Fundamentally, though, as we look at these things, I think these questions are worth asking, but they're not the ultimate question. Not at all. I mean, all of you are here. You all have eternal souls. And I said the next, the, the next thing that's going to happen after the second coming is either this or that. This I can tell you. No matter what happens with the millennium, it is appointed for each one of us to die. If we're not in the final generation, if it doesn't come in our lifetime, it is appointed for each one of us to die and after that to face judgment. That I can tell you will happen. And if you haven't come to faith in Christ, you're going to be lost. So if you came here today as an unbeliever and you're hearing this, you're like, you know, I don't even know what you're talking about. Maybe you came today because you wanted to know how your sins could be forgiven. Maybe you feel guilty for the ways that you violated your conscience. Maybe you feel lost with no purpose. You feel desperate. It is my joy, my duty, my responsibility to tell you that there's good news in Christ. And the millennium is not the most important thing I want to say to you. Not at all. It's that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he was raised from the dead on the third day. And that if you repent, turn away from your sins and trust in him you'll have eternal life. Now, we're about to go celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to partake of that. If you're not a believer, if you've not come to faith in Christ and testified to that by water baptism, we're going to ask that you refrain, that you not come. But if you are a believer, we would love for you to partake. We believe that this is an important time in the life of our church. We believe that the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, blesses faithful observance of the Lord's Supper. We believe that someday we're going to eat with him 
in the kingdom. And we believe that as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so we are going to do all of that now uh, by faith. Would you please close this part of the service in prayer? Lord, thank you for the time we've had to begin to consider the difficult, challenging topic of the millennium. We thank you, O Lord, for the provision that you've made for sinners like us at the cross and the empty tomb, and then for Christians to commemorate that through the Lord's Supper. We ask now that you would bless us with your presence. We pray that you would now strengthen our faith and help us to partake in a manner worthy of the Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.